Thank you, Ben and worship team. Man, I thank God that every Sunday we can come and gather and worship together and sense the presence of God in this place. Isn't that awesome? And uh, that's not the case in a lot of places. So I, for one, am thankful for our church. And I'm thankful that uh, as long as we lift up the name of Jesus, he's promised to draw people to himself. And as long as two or three gather in his name, he says, there I am in the midst. And I'm so thankful for that. That's what makes what we do here every Sunday supernatural. This isn't just a meeting. Uh, We get to come and, and sense the presence of God and open up his holy word. And he changes lives. And so I, I, don't, I don't know if you take that for granted. Sometimes I do, but we should not. This is a special time. And so thank you for being here. I know that many of you came this morning with the threat of uh, freezing precipitation. And uh, I was kind of chuckling a little bit this morning. They had NBC5 had the thunder truck, the weather truck, out in Weatherford. It was like they were chasing down, you know, freezing rain somewhere so they could put it on camera. It was a winter weather alert. And uh, Tyler Martin, our outreach pastor, is in Wyoming right now, and they're driving on packed snow and ice. And so it just all depends on where you live, you know. Uh, But uh, I'm so glad that you chose to be in the right place today. Pastor John has asked me to preach the second message uh, that covers the seven pillars, our, our core values here at Hallmark. He covered the first four last week, and it is my job today to cover the final three and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and list them there. If you have your bulletin, uh, the first four that Pastor John talked about last week were unapologetic preaching, number one, unashamed worship, number two, unceasing prayer, number three, and an unafraid witness, number four. And those of you that were in Connect Group, you were in Acts 16, and you, you really covered unafraid witness. You saw Paul in all different situations with all different people, uh, boldly proclaiming the gospel. And uh, we... we hope to do that as a church, individually and corporately as a church body. But today I'm going to cover the final three, and I'll give them to you as number five, six, and seven. And before we get into that, I have to uh, explain something to you. The weather is cold, the air is dry, and if you're like me, you you get uh, chapped and flaky, you know. And so I put on some lotion this morning on my hands, and it's hard for a guy to admit that. And the only reason I'm telling you is because after putting on the lotion, I forgot to put back on my wedding ring. The only time I ever take off my wedding ring is when I put on hand lotion. And so I did that, and I took my ring off, and I forgot to put it back on. And I didn't notice until I was on my way to church, and I told Dawn, I said, I have to turn around right now, go back and get my wedding band. She said, no, don't turn around, we're almost there. It's not a big deal. I said, no, it is a big deal. I have worn it for 21 years. My, my finger is smaller at that point. It's more pale. Uh, the skin is actually in an incredible condition where my ring was. But uh, I need to go get it. And she said, no, let's not turn around. She said, in fact, I'll just take mine off and we won't say anything about it. So get the gossip mill churning. But uh, we're fine. Everything is good. I just put some lotion on. I forgot to put my ring back on. So... Something's, if something's missing, if something feels a little off, that's what it is. I don't have my ring on. But let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. That's where we'll be today. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 6. Because as you study the early church in the book of Acts, you see some things that are taking place there in the early church 
that are descriptive of what should be happening here uh, in our church today. Now, the book of Acts is in the genre of Scripture uh, that they identify as a narrative. It's a story. And so when you're, you have to be careful when you're looking at a narrative in that genre uh, because not everything that you see there is going to be prescriptive. It's not always going to be stuff that we should do because it's, it's unique. And, and such as the book of Acts, it's a trans, transitional book. It's where there's a whole new uh, dispensation of grace. The Holy Spirit is coming down. Jesus has ascended. And there's a whole new age beginning, a church age. And so not everything we see in the book of Acts is prescriptive. In other words, do this. But it's descriptive in that we can learn a lot from what was happening. And then when you see something that's described in Acts... Uh, that, that looks like something we should be doing, you go later on into Scripture, into different genres like the Epistles or even back in the Gospels, and you see what is prescribed by Jesus, what is prescribed by the Apostles after the church has been established. And then if that which is described in Acts and prescribed in the Epistles uh, lines up, man, that's exactly what we should be doing. And, and we're going to look at those things today. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 6, we're just going to read a few sections of Scripture, and I have them up here. And as we read through, I'm going to identify some of the seven pillars. You'll see them kind of jump out. And if you can't see them, I've written them up there for you so that you will see them. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. It says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That's an unafraid witness right there. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine with unapologetic preaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. There's unceasing prayer. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. There's unselfish generosity. I'll be speaking on that today. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, there's unashamed worship, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's an incredible passage of scripture. It describes the early church. Then we're going to skip over to Acts chapter 4. So turn over a couple chapters. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, we see another description of the early church. It says in verse 32 of Acts 4, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There's uncommon unity. I'll be talking about that today. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. There's unselfish generosity. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There's unafraid witness. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that, that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's unselfish generosity. Now turn over to Acts chapter 6. Just go forward a couple chapters. And we see another description of this rapidly growing, rapidly expanding church. It starts out with 3,000 people. 
that trust Christ after Peter preaches. And they, they begin to be followers of Jesus. And they're coming together. Now in Acts 6, it says in verse 1 through 7, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nick, Tim, Parmenas, and another Nick, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then, look at this, verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were also obedient to the faith. Okay, so, those were our three passages of Scripture where we see descriptions of the church. And in those descriptions of the early church, the seven pillars that we rest on as a church just come right out at you. And I I named the first four, and today we're going to cover the final three. The first one, or number five, as you look at the list, is unselfish generosity. Unselfish generosity. Back in chapter 2, verse 45, it says that they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now again, this is not prescriptive here. This is just descriptive. They sold all their stuff and stockpiled it. In chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. They lived open-handedly for the glory of God. And in chapter 4, verses 34 through 37, it talked about how because they sold their possessions and bring uh, their, their money in and pulled it together that nobody, nobody lacked for anything because as a need arise, they just met the need as the church. And then they show the example of Barnabas who sold some land and then came and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Now, a lot of people will look at this description of the early church and say, well, that's socialism. Or some will even say, well, that's communism. They're selling all their stuff, they're bringing it in, and people are just, they're redistributing the wealth. But you'll notice that it wasn't compulsory. You see, socialism and communism are compulsory. You do it or you pay the price. You get in jail, you get put in jail. That was not what we see here described in the early church. This was all a voluntary voluntary grace-motivated giving that benefited all. Um, and And so it's not... It's not prescriptive in that it's saying that the church, if you want to be a real church, that you go, you go sell all your stuff and we just pull all the money. No. This describes unselfish generosity. Unselfish generosity. And by the way, not only is unselfish generosity described here in Acts, it's prescribed in other places. Jesus prescribes that we should be givers. Um, and, and as you study through the letters in the early church, The Apostle Paul was encouraging the church to give sacrificially to help another church. Sacrificial giving is encouraged and described and prescribed throughout the scriptures. And I am of the personal opinion that a person's generosity with their money is the most telling reality of their faith in Christ. 
Well, why would you say that, Dave? I'll tell you why. People get funny when you talk about money. You know why? Because a person's wallet is somehow attached to their heart. We live, in, we live in a technological society. I mean, you can take a picture of your check and digitally deposit it. I've known about this for a long time. I've just been afraid to do it. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm old enough where I'm like, this is something not right about this. How do I know that the check actually went in? Because physically, I still have the check. What do I do with this check now? Do I tear the check up? Do I put it in a file folder? What if they screw up? I mean, all this stuff has gone through my mind. Finally, I'm just now trusting enough where I can take a picture of the front and the back of the check and trust that it's deposited. I feel actually pretty cool when I do that. You know, honey, I've, I've deposited those checks. You don't have to worry about that. But you know, everything's connected. We have apps we can pay with our phone. Everything's connected to our bank account. But the most, the most telling thing about a person is our hearts are connected to our bank accounts, aren't they? Yeah, that's why we get funny when people talk about money. Because possessions have a tendency to possess us. And Jesus knew that. That's why he talks so much about money and possessions. Because he knew that money would be his number one competition in the life of his followers. You know, money's not bad. It's not money that's the root of evil. It's the love of money. And so many times we're tempted to love money that's why god wants us to be unselfishly generous because being selfish and greedy is our nature you see it in a little toddler when they have a toy and somebody comes up and and dares to to try to use that toy they say mine right and that's what people do when you talk about money it's mine that's our sin nature but when jesus comes in and he changes us one of the first things he changes is he opens up our hands and we go from being selfish to being unselfish and generous. And we want to give. Why? Because we recognize that God is a giver. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his most precious treasure, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God is a giver. Therefore, those of us who love God and follow God should be givers, right? We should be unselfishly generous mike when he prayed uh, quoted james 1 7 every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning so we as followers of christ are generous because we know that god is a giver that god is generous we want to be like him jesus said in matthew 6 19 through 21 he said do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourself Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We know because people get so funny when you talk about money and probably you're thinking, okay, Dave, we get it, move on, move on. Stop talking about money, please, I'm getting uncomfortable. Well, instead of, uh, of continuing the discussion with currency, I thought I would use candy to picture how simple it is to be generous with what God gives us. Okay, Valentine's Day is coming. Wednesday, guys. Wednesday, all right, you still have time to do right. But I thought I'd show you a picture of how simple it is 
to be unselfishly generous. You see, God gave his children, his, his nation Israel, the, the plan. I'm going to give you a plan to keep your heart in the right place and to keep me in my right place because possessions will compete for your affections. And so I'm going to give you a plan. Everything that I give you, everything I bless you with, I want you to take the first 10% of that, the first fruits, off the top and return it to me. Well, they can't give to an invisible God, so they give it uh, to something that represents God on earth, which was at that time the tabernacle or the temple. They take it into God's house, and so they would give 10% off the top, a percentage that was prioritized on a regular basis to remind them from whom all blessings flow. I have 10 boxes of heart, uh, heart-shaped boxes of candy here this morning, okay? Isn't this amazing? That's a lot of candy right there. Like if I was buying that candy for me, I would have a problem, all right? And my problem would be a little bit bigger than forgetting to wear my wedding ring. You'd be like, Dave, really, you need to cut back, brother, all right? Ten boxes of candy. I could, there's no way I could eat all of us in one sitting. There's no way. It is abundant. And God has given me all of this, and he's given me all this to show me how much he loves me, how much he cares for me, and just to show him how much I love him, I'm going to take a box right off of the front here and say, God, I love you, and I'm returning this portion to you. Thank you. 10% off the top. Pretty easy, right? 10 boxes, one box. $10, $1. $100, $10. That's where I stop because my math will get fuzzy. But you see how easy God made it for them? 10%. He didn't pick 12. He didn't pick 11. He didn't pick 3. Some of us would struggle with that. He just made it easy. 10%. That was for the Old Testament. I know a lot of you are thinking... Dave, we're we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. I'm glad you noticed. And so how much more should we give than just 10, right? Why would you ever allow a Jew who was under the law that could never please God by living according to the jot and tittles of the law, why would you ever be outdone by someone like that who has not tasted the grace of God? We have tasted the grace of God. We are complete in Him. All the things that were hidden from them for ages and generations has now been revealed to us, and now we know God's plan, and it's to send Jesus to die and give Himself for us. How much more do we owe God than 10%? You see, I'm not strict about a percentage. I just think that 10% is a good place to start. Don't stop there. This is the training wheels of giving. And so I have 10 boxes of candy And just to show God, God, I love you. I recognize that I wouldn't have any of this were not from you. And I want you to stay in your rightful place. I don't want possessions to possess my affections. I'm going to give you the first fruit. So here's ten. Look how much candy I have left. Nine boxes. Right? And that's all for me. That's still too much candy for me. God is so good to me. He loves me so much. What should I do? Well, wisdom says I may not always have this candy like this. It, It may not be in abundance like this. And so I'm going to take one and I'm going to set it aside for later, okay? Give, save. I'm going to set this aside. Look how much candy I have left. This is insane. That's too much candy for me. Now what? Well, I'm going to look around for somebody that might not have as much candy. There are people out there with less. And so I'm going to choose to live simply so that other people can simply live. I'm going to take some of my candy and I'm going to help other people and bless them. Isn't that simple? Isn't it simple? Now, it's simple, but it's not easy, is it? It's simple, but it's not easy. 
Because we have a tendency, our sin nature is to hang on tightly to our possessions. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruit of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You know what I get from that passage of Scripture? If we honor God with the best of it, He'll bless the rest of it. But if we fail to honor God with the best of it, there will always be more a month at the end of your money. Just mark it down. My wife and I committed 21 years ago when we got married that we would give. Not because we had a bunch. We did not. We just knew that whatever we did have came from God. And we wanted to honor Him. And we wanted to show Him that we know, God, that you're our provider. And so we want to honor you. And so we're going to keep you in your rightful place. And so we're going to give you 10% off the top, first fruit, every paycheck that comes in. We're going to decide on purpose with a percentage that we're going to honor you and keep you first. And then we started feeling convicted that 10% wasn't enough. And so we started to increase our percentage over time. And we started to give above and beyond that to missions and, and to building funds. Every, every place we've ever been has had a building fund. So we just give the building fund. And we give to missions. And then we support individual uh, ministries like Manna Worldwide. And we give to individual missionaries. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm not saying that because we're so loaded that we can just spray money everywhere. No, that's not the case. Well, we made a decision to put God first. You know what we've discovered? When we give God the best of it, He will bless the rest of it. He really does. Now, for some of you that still might be struggling with the simplicity of unselfish generosity, I'm going to tell you a story, and then we'll, we'll move on. Uh, a pastor here in the Metroplex said that one uh, beautiful fall day, he went out to watch a football game with his daughter. And they were sitting there in the bleachers, and his daughter said, Dad, can I get some money? I'm going to go over to the snack bar and to the concession stand and, and get some candy. So he gave her some money. She went over there, and she comes back with a king-size bag of Skittles. She tears that thing open. She starts eating those Skittles, man, and really enjoying it. I mean, the colored juices were coming out of her mouth, you know, and he was looking at the Skittles, and he said, Hey, can Dad have some of your Skittles? She said, No. These are my Skittles. Well, the, the dad said, well, there's three things my daughter does not understand. Number one, those are not really her Skittles. She would not have those Skittles had I not given her money to go and buy the Skittles. Technically, those Skittles, every single one of them, are my Skittles. Number two, I don't need her Skittles. I don't need her Skittles. I can go over to the concession stand I can buy my own Skittles. Not only that, I have enough money. I could buy the whole box of Skittles and buy them out of Skittles and come over and rain Skittles down on top of my daughter's head. You want Skittles? I'll show you some Skittles. Rain Skittles down. Number three, the third thing his daughter didn't understand, he said she didn't understand that if I really wanted her Skittles, I could take them from her because I'm bigger and I'm stronger. And I could just snatch her Skittles away. Listen, we all have Skittles, don't we? Some of us have a little bit of Skittles. Some of us have like the big Sam's Club bag of Skittles. There are some of you in the room today that have volcanoes that make Skittles every month <laughs> and spew them into your bank account. It's not a bad thing. But God 
just wants some of your Skittles. And he wants you to recognize who they come from, that they're not your Skittles. He owns them. He doesn't need them, but he's inviting you to be a part of his plan. He's inviting you to be a part of his purpose. He's giving you a chance, an opportunity. And if he really wanted them, he could take them that quick. So one of our pillars here is unselfish generosity. You cannot follow a giving God and not be a giver. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You just have to be generous. That's it. And by the way, all of us will eventually give everything we have to someone else. Death will eventually pry open our hands, take our stuff, and give it to other people. So why not do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going? Don't be the richest person in the graveyard. Wow, he's got a really nice stone. Who cares? Anyway, moving on, moving on. The second thing we're going to look at today, number six, uncommon unity. Uncommon unity. It says in chapter 2, verse 44, now all who believe were together. They had all things in common. And in chapter 4, verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own but they had all things in common. Now understand that the believers that, that we're talking about here in, in these chapters, in Acts chapters 2 and 4, were from every nation under heaven. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 5, it, it tells us that these people were from all over the place. Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, said that some of those that were gathered there in the early church were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians, Romans, Asians, Libyans, Arabians, they were from everywhere. And yet they were together and they had all things in common. They were from different places. They had different faces, but they experienced the same graces. Incredible unity amidst all this diversity. Did you know that we are a diverse faith family? We're diverse. Uh, I, I made some calls this week. And, and right now, could I have some of my faith family members that I called this week? Would you, will you join me on stage? Come on up. Everybody give them a hand. Give him a hand. They have no idea what I'm going to ask them to do. Come on up. Come on up. Don't be shy, guys. Just stand up here behind me. Just line up here behind me. We, we get the privilege, those of us that are on the platform on Sundays, we get the privilege of being up here and looking out across your faces. And so we get to see this every Sunday. Uh, but I wanted you to see what we see. I want you to see the diversity of our church. We have a mosaic of membership here at Hallmark Baptist Church. Different faces from different places. God has brought the nations here. We, we are a diverse family, and so we have Jeff and Paula Fox. Everybody give Jeff and Paula a hand. It's good to see you guys. See you. We have, we have Anj Rakundo. Anj is from Rwanda, okay? And he's, he's here, part of our faith family, yeah. We have Brian Nutt. This guy's a nut. Those of you that know Brian. Okay, we have Valerie. Valerie's a good friend of my daughter, Denise, and she's very tall. What grade are you in, Valerie? Eight. Eighth grade, so, you know, she's going to keep going. This is Ziamaro Ocasio. She's from Honduras. Ziamaro, yeah, you can go ahead and give her a, give her a hand. She uh, visits with our, with our senior ladies on Tuesdays. She goes and visits those who are in the hospital, and those who can't come and be with us on Sunday, she visits them. And so that's part of her ministry. So thanks for being up here. This is Juvie. Juvie is a member of our faith family. She's originally from the Philippines. And she's married to Justin. 
over here. And I'm not sure why they're not standing together. Okay, his wedding band's on. We're good. We're good. This is, uh, this is Carolee Rose. And Carolee is one of the best huggers in our church. And she's from Jamaica. And she makes an incredible punch for us every now and then from, from a Sorel flower. We call it Jamaican juice. Anyway, but Carolee is a part of our faith family. And, of course, this is, this is Justin. And Justin uh, actually served and ministered in New Jersey. So you guys need to talk later. But he, yeah, so he's part of our faith family too. And of course, this is Donald Burrell, and uh, he's from Alabama. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. He just said it. He just said it in my ear. But guys, look look at this incredible mosaic from our church. This is just a sample. Yeah, give him a hand. Thank you guys. And I want to give you guys a treat here. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. I can't have all this candy to myself. So let me give you all a box here. Thank you for being a visual this morning, and happy Valentine's Day. I love these people. I'm so thankful that every Sunday when I come to church, I get to be a part of a diverse faith family. Yeah, switch them around, switch them around. Here you go. There's one for everybody. All right, give them one more hand. Thank you, guys. You are dismissed. Thank you, guys. Love you. Love you all. You know, we live in a divided culture, don't we? Our culture is divided racially. It's divided politically. It's divided generationally. This older generation doesn't like the younger generation. The younger generation doesn't like the older generation. We make fun of each other. Our culture is divided sexually. Men and women, you know, and the fighting uh, there. And, and Satan loves that. He loves to divide because he can divide and conquer. But Jesus doesn't divide. Jesus unifies. And when you have people from all different places that have all different faiths, faces experience the same graces in Jesus Christ they come together I don't have much in common with any of these people except one thing and that's Jesus Christ he's my Savior he's their Savior he's who I worship he's who they worship we are one in Christ we're a faith family and and I love that and I love that it's happening here at Hallmark Ephesians 4 1 through 6 says I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of your calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your race is not your identity. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your political party is not your identity. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your gender is not your identity. Your identity is the person of Jesus Christ. We are in him, he is in us, and now we are part of a faith family that transcends all things that would divide us. Aren't you thankful for that? I praise God for that. Praise God for that. I had a great conversation last Sunday with uh, Betty Johns, Pansy Weesey, in the atrium. And these two ladies have been in our church for a long time. Long time. They've raised their families in our church. They've launched their kids out of our church. They still faithfully come to our church. And they were talking about how back in the day, everything that their family did revolved around the church. They lived close to the church. Whenever the church was having an activity, it just dominated the talk and the focus of their family. The church was 
centralized to everything they did. And they were sharing some wonderful fond memories. And I was thinking, man, what has changed? What has changed? Because that seems to not be the case anymore. Church is no longer central. Church is a category in a person's life. Their faith is a category, but it's not central. And I think one of the things that has to do with it is we have commuter Christians. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but man, back in the day, deciding where you live, a big part of that decision was how close is it to my church? We don't do that anymore. We commute to our jobs. We drive a long way to our jobs. The only time we ever see those people is when we're at work because we're 40 minutes away. And we drive to our church. We commute to our church. And the only time we see those people is on Sunday morning because we don't live anywhere near those people. We're commuter Christians. And that has a tendency to impact our connectedness and our unity. Man, we're, we're really pushing for every person that comes here, every member of Hallmark, to be in a connect group. Why? So that you can do life together. People that are in the same life stage, we can raise our kids together and go to church together and serve Jesus together, but that's so difficult when people live so far away and they just drive in. It's difficult. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that that's a challenge because people will be committed if they feel connected. And you know, I've heard this before. We, want, we don't want our church to get too big because I won't know everybody then. I got news for you. You don't know everybody now. Some of you are realizing that for the first time because Pastor John's making you sit in new places. And you're like, who are those people? I don't know. They've probably been here for eight years. You're just now meeting them. But you don't know people. Not, you don't know every, everyone. The goal of our church isn't to have a church where we know everyone. That's a myth. But the, church, the goal of our church is so that everyone will be known by someone. We want you to connect with someone. So connect Let's preserve that uncommon unity that we have as a church. Finally, number seven, the seventh pillar of our church, our core value is unwavering service. The reason I had you go to Acts 6 is because it describes a challenge that the, that the rapidly growing church experienced. In just two short chapters from Acts chapter 4 to Acts chapter 6, we see the early church their growth was being stunted because of overwhelmed leaders that could not physically meet everyone's needs. So we have the 12 disciples, and we have more and more people believing and receiving Christ, and then there are needs. They're trying to minister to needs, and the church was so large that they finally could not physically do it themselves. It says in Acts 6, 2, 3, Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. In secular leadership circles, they call this the leadership lid. It's when the leader reaches his highest capacity and he can no longer continue to do what he's doing and the organization will stop because the guy at the top is doing everything. It's called the leadership lid. And that's what was happening here in Acts chapter 6. And so what was the solution? Well, the 12 disciples didn't get together and say, we just need to work harder. No, they gathered the group, the body of Christ together, and said, choose out from among you faithful men who will serve and, and, and let them serve the church. 
The solution was the unwavering service of the saints. Now, I've learned that some pastors have the Superman syndrome. My dad was a pastor. He had the Superman syndrome. What is the Superman syndrome? It's, it basically, in summary, says, I can do everything that needs to be done. I can pray for the people in my care without ceasing. I can preach the finest and freshest sermons. I can maintain the nicest facility. I can lead the sharpest staff. I can visit every person that has had a hangnail or heart surgery. I can counsel the most distraught married couple. I can feed the homeless. I can care for the orphans. I can lead 10 people to Christ every week the whole year. I can marry people. I can bury people. I can be a part of the civic group so that we can get connected with the city leadership. I can further my own education so that I'm a better preacher teacher. I can be a leader in my denomination. And... I can lead my home and my family to trust and follow Jesus. Impossible. Impossible. The truth is, if a pastor has a Superman syndrome and tries to do all of those things, not only will the man suffer, but the ministry will suffer. I'm afraid that generations of Superman syndrome pastors have helped create a consumer culture where members come to be served by professional staff. They view the church as a building, not a body. They see the pastors and full-time staff as servants of God who meet the needs of the members, and that is not a biblical model. It's just not. This was done with the best of intentions. They love people. They love Jesus. They wanted to work hard. They want to hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But they're not the only disciples of Jesus. We all one day long to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So the Apostle Paul affirmed the correct pattern to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, and you've heard this a lot, but I'll read it again. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. When saints participate in unwavering service, the body of Christ is edified and encouraged. Edification and encouragement comes when you serve in the church, but frustration and disappointment come when you expect to be served in the church. The Superman syndrome leads to growth by addition. We add people. But serving saints, everybody serving sacrificially, leads to growth by multiplication. When members become ministers, ministry is multiplied. Now, I know it's, uh, we're nearing the end of our time here, so turn to John chapter 13, verses 3 through 5. We want to be like Jesus, and Jesus was not a consumer. He didn't come to earth as a comfortable king to take, to receive. He came to earth as a suffering servant. He came to give. And he demonstrated that on the last night he was with his disciples. John 13, 3 through 5, it said, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all these things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? 
you call me teacher and Lord, and, and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, washing feet was the most demeaning act of service of the day. Some servants didn't even wash feet because it was considered too menial of a task. And yet we have Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. The rabbi washing the feet of the students. And he said, this is what I want you to do to one another. You need to wash one another's feet. So ish? I'm just kidding. It's empty. You should have seen his face. It was awesome. He was like, oh, here we go. He started thinking about what socks he put on. If he really spent enough time this morning washing his feet. Sorry about that. You were sitting right here. That's the downside of a new seat. Listen. Listen. Jesus served. Right? He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you know what we do most of the time in church? We critique how other people wash our feet. Isn't that sad? You missed a spot. You know what I think? I think you need a nicer towel next time. This water is too cold. And I expect this water to be a certain temperature when I come in here and get my feet washed. And you missed the little nooks and cranny between my my baby toe back there. Can you go back? Q-tips would be nice next time. And we come and we critique those who wash our feet. Instead of picking up a towel, filling up a basin, and saying... How can I help? What can I do? Where can I serve? We have incredible servants here at Hallmark. We need more. We need more. Don't come and sit and soak and then sour. No. Jesus came and he served you. He blessed you with his service. Now we need to bless others with our service. We need to serve. Unwavering service. Anybody can point out problems, but servants become solutions to the problem. Isn't that what Jesus did? He saw man's problem, lost in sin, hopeless, can't save themselves. And then he said, I'll go and do for them what they can't do for themselves. I will come, I will love them, I will serve them, I will give my life for them. He's our suffering servant. He's our Savior. You want to be like Jesus? Pick up a towel and a basin and say, how can I help? How can I serve? Will you stand with me this morning? Bow your heads with me as we think through these seven pillars. You know, we as a church cannot rest on these seven pillars until individually each of us says, God, help me to build my life on these seven things. Lord, help me to build my life around unapologetic preaching, unashamed worship, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, unselfish generosity, uncommon unity, and unwavering service. I want to be like you. If each of us did that, ministry 
would multiply here in Fort Worth. Ministry would multiply in Texas. Ministry would multiply around the world through Hallmark Baptist Church. God would do amazing things. The Spirit of God would unleash His power here in our church if we all rested our lives on the seven pillars. It all begins with choosing to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for your salvation. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, and you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, He's the one that convicts of sin. He's the one that draws us in. If you sense Him convicting your heart this morning, saying you need to trust in Jesus, you need to do that today. There are people up here on the front row with the Bible, and they would love to show you from God's Word how to follow Jesus, how to become saved, how to turn from your sin, your self-effort, and how to put your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sin. Some of you need to get saved this morning. And so we're going to sing in a moment. As soon as we begin singing, if that's you, you need to come down and pray with someone, follow Christ. I'm going to encourage you to do that. For the rest of you, I'm going to challenge you to come forward and pray and say, God, I want to build my life on these seven pillars. I don't want to be a consumer Christian. Put me in the game. I want to serve. I want to, I want to witness. I want to worship. I want to pray. I want to give. Lord, I want, to, I want to be united with my brothers and sisters in Christ no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, no matter what they believe, because we're united in you. Some of you need to come and pray that. God, help me to do that. And so I'm going to say a word of prayer. Ben's going to lead us in a song. We're going to have just an open time of prayer and worship. We're going to sing a couple songs, so just you'll have plenty of time to come down and pray and then join us in worship. But let's, let's ask God to touch our hearts today. Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do. I pray that you draw hearts to yourself. Lord, if there's someone here that's saved, Spirit of God, draw them, convict them, help them to turn to you, Lord, and experience a wonderful new life and become part of a wonderful faith family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.